Good afternoon. Good to see you all. I got the privilege of uh, explaining some of those particular points in the second Bible reading that Sandra just read out from 1 Peter. Florin, a bright and enthusiastic 24-year-old Romanian, was a man devoted to the spreading of communist propaganda in support of his party. He had been a fervent defender of communist ideology. One night, his devotion to the cause led him through the doors of a Baptist church as a spy. Most of the communist leaders in Romania didn't believe in God. They sought to hasten the demise of organised religion. They shuttered charities, they shut down church schools and colleges and stopped all religious teaching in the school system. As part of the crackdown on religious expression, communist officials asked Florin to attend a series of revival meetings in the Baptist church in his city. Florin said there was, he was there to take notes, to see who was aligning with the Christians and then inform the secret police about the proceedings. Although he was committed to the Communist Party, Florin was curious about the Christians and their foolish beliefs and practices. That night, when he stepped into the church building as a spy, Florin was stunned by the preacher's message. The Spirit of the Lord was upon me, Florin explained later. I don't remember the passage of scripture he preached from, he said, but I never forgot the message. Jesus is King. At the end of the sermon, Florin, the agnostic young man rising in the ranks of the Communist Party, cast aside his hopes and dreams for earthly prominence and surrendered to Jesus as Lord. When the preacher asked people to raise a hand if they wanted to trust in Christ, Florin shot both of his arms into the air. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, I am yours, he prayed. I give myself to you. The story I just read is one that shouldn't be too unusual for us. Even though none of us are in a communist party, I don't think so anyway, living in Romania, being a spy, we can still relate to God's word having the power to change people's lives. I'm sure a majority of us can relate because we too have had that same experience. Today I want to be a little bit nostalgic with you. I want you to recall your conversion, that time when God's word spoke to you for the very first time, that moment when you acknowledged Jesus as king. See, I want you to recall that experience because by it you'll begin to understand why Peter is calling us to love each other in our passage today. I'm going to pray for us. Please join with me as I do so. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word that was preached to us has the power to change us. It was only through the power of your word and the work of your spirit that we were able to acknowledge you as king. And as we look at your word this afternoon, let us have that same experience that we had in our past, the ability for us to be transformed. We pray this in your name. Amen. Last week in our series in 1 Peter, we were urged by the writer to be holy. For those who have missed it, Peter said that we need to be holy because you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. 
And this redemption was due to the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So we are to be a holy people because it's through Christ's death which has made us holy. But this new section, Peter, Peter urges his readers to be loving. As we heard last week, holiness just means to be set apart. It just means to be different. Then how is the Christian meant to show how they are to be different? How are they to show that they are to be holy? Well, verse 22 has our answer. We are to have a sincere love for each other, to love one another deeply from the heart. That is how we are to be holy. I suspect that that isn't a surprise to anyone. None of us are really against love. We would all happily sing along with the Beatles when they sang, all you need is love. As people, we can all recognise the power behind being loved. It's something that we long to experience. And even though we can recognise the power behind it, we can often have a superficial understanding as to why we need to love. In your bulletin that you would have received, there are three points. And the first point that we're going to be looking at this afternoon is why we need to love. Well, verse 22, once again, gives us an answer. It's the bit at the start that I haven't mentioned. It says, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, what, we sh- what should we do? Well, we should love. So it's our purification that leads us to love. Did you notice the word purified is in the past tense? See, this is interesting to note that Peter doesn't state that we are being purified as something that is continue, continuous, something that we constantly need to work on. No, our purification is past tense because our redemption in verse 18 is past tense. And despite our salvation being in the past, it still requires a response in the present, an act of obedience to the truth. And it's when those two things collide, something remarkable occurs. It should make us love. See, if I were to put verse 22 as a math sum, it would look like this. I think Sam had it up. Here it is. Purification by the work of Jesus plus obedience to the truth equals love one another. That's the maths that Peter is showing us in verse 22. See, when I did maths back at school, my teacher would often say that it was important in exams to show your working and how you got to your answer. Because if you got the answer wrong, you might have a, a lenient, nice marker who might give you a mark for showing your working. Now, there may be some of us here who are looking at that sum and thinking to themselves, well, I like the answer. The answer is good. But I just don't understand how you got to that answer, Peter. How does purification by the work of Jesus and our obedience to the truth lead us to be loving? Well, verse 23. Verse 23 is Peter's working. It's his explanation of why we are to love. And his explanation relates to our conversion. It relates to our new beginning. It relates to that impossible concept of being, in verse 23, born again. 
For as Nicodemus said to Jesus in John chapter 3 when he spoke of this concept, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. But the way Jesus and Peter speaks of this concept isn't related to a physical beginning, but a spiritual new beginning where we've come into the light of the kingdom of God. It's through this rebirth that we've been given a new hope. And that hope is as sure as Jesus' own resurrection from the grave. It's our inheritance that we too will be resurrected. That we too will be imperishable. That's how Peter describes those who have been obedient to the truth. You can see it there in verse 23. We become imperishable. But isn't that concept just far too difficult to comprehend? Because everything, everything in this world perishes. For my birthday in 2016, my wife, Kim Jeng, bought me an indoor plant. It was beautiful. It was called a string of pearls, and I got to choose it. And I remember asking the shop attendant if this plant was hard to kill, and he assured me that it was difficult. And I feel like I don't even need to end this story because you know exactly where it's going to end, don't you? Anyway, the week after I was given the plant, I put it in my room, and in my busyness, my room stayed dimly lit with the curtains drawn across. And when I came back to view this, week, this plant after a week later, all the petals were mouldy and it looked very ill. And from that time onwards, it never really recovered. I don't know if there's any green thumbs in the congregation. It's people who are passionate about gardening. Gardening is hard work because sometimes you feel like you are the last line of defence where you're always having to water your plants, you're always having to fertilise the soil, you're always having to prune for weeds just so your plants don't die. See, with the curse of sin entering our, our world, resulting in death in Genesis chapter, I mean, Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve committed the sin, then nothing in our world has the ability to be everlasting. Everything has an expiry date. So surely this concept, this concept of something being imperishable, is fanciful. It's a myth. But Peter says in verse 23 that it's through the living and enduring word of God which makes us imperishable. See, we've become imperishable because of our obedience to the word of God. This is why those words of truth that were communicated to you at your conversion are worth recalling because at that particular moment, you no longer had an expiry date. Through the gifts of God, you became just like him. You became imperishable because at that moment when you heard the gospel, something happened in you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, uh, it should come up on the screen. Thanks, Sam. It says this. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. 
sees the work of God's Spirit as we put our faith in the message of the gospel, that is our seal that makes us imperishable. Our guarantee that our bodies won't die, but will receive an inheritance. The more I've been uh, reading this letter of 1 Peter over the last couple of weeks, the more I'm convinced that 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, is the major verses in the book of 1 Peter. I've already alluded to this verse, but I'm going to read it out in full. And I want you to know how Peter describes our inheritance. He uses three adjectives. But there is one in particular that I want us to focus on. It says this, and the verses should come up on the screen once again. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never blank, spoil or fade. What's that word that's missing? What's that word that's been omitted? Thank you, Jeremy. It's the word perish. Our inheritance won't perish because it's through the work of God that we don't perish. Because it's through the Father sending the Son, guaranteeing our resurrection. But it's also through the Father giving giving his Spirit to us to mark us and claim us as his own. So how does the explanation of verse 23, how does that, does that get us any closer to the answer in our math sum to be loving because I'm sure there may be some of us who still don't fully understand what this concept of being imperishable has to do with being loving surely there's still a knowledge gap there see to be imperishable as we've seen is to have God's spirit and to ha- which is to have God in you and the nature of this new seed in us is to have god's spirit in us the apostle paul the apostle john in chapter four of his first letter writes with the same plea to love as peter did and he says this dear friends let us love one another for love comes from god everyone who loves has been born of god and knows god whoever does not love does not know god because god is love This is how God shows his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. John continues in verse 16b. He says this, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. See, if we've become imperishable through God planting his seed in us, then we should expect to be just like him. And who he is at his core is love. God is love. So by consequence, we are to be loving. See, this way of life should be as natural. If we were to go outside right now and I were to plant an orange seed and over time we would watch it, we would fertilise it, we would water it and we would look and we would wait and we should expect Well, we should expect an orange tree, shouldn't we? So why do we need to love? Because those who have been born again have God's seed. 
and that seed will germinate in us to be like our loving God. The time after Florin became a Christian, the time after he became a Christian was extremely trying. Florin's wife did not share her husband's newfound faith, which made things difficult for them at home. He also got hounded by his wife's family as well. On top of that, he knew that he would be in direct conflict with his party. He had known Christian leaders that had languished in prison while exiled to remote places or faced death under mysterious circumstances. And so for 15 years, Florent had three police informants keep tabs on him, one at church, one at his apartment block, and one at the train station where Florent ran a restaurant business. This form of persecution would have been also familiar to Peter's audience. And so the question for Florin and for the first century Christians reading Peter's letter and for us is, how can we endure in love? Which is the second point on your sermon outline. See, to love someone who is receptive to your love, that's a pretty easy task. But it's hard to give love to someone when all you receive is hate. So at that point, our temptation is to be partial with whom we love. So how does the apostle encourage his readers to endure in love? To be unconditional in love? Well, he provides an example from Israel's past. Verse 25, if you may have noticed, is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah chapter 40 is a hinge chapter in the book, where Isaiah's message is changed from judgment to comfort. The people of Israel have just been given bad news in this particular chapter. And it says this, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the words of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all, the, all your procedures have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. So what comfort can Isaiah give his people? who are going to have their future king's descendants taken away into the hands of Babylon, along with everything in the palace. Well, the prophet said these words, which Peter quotes in his letter. He says this, All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of God endures forever. So how is this quotation helpful? Well, Babylon's rule is numbered. They will wither. They will fall. Their glory will come to nothing. And those, pe- those people who are persecuting Peter's readers, well, their days are numbered. Their rule and their glory will fade away and come to nothing. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the comedy stylings of Hamish and Andy. I'm hopefully hoping that there's a couple of fans in, in the congregation. And a couple of months ago on their podcast, Hamish had a plan to surprise his son, Sonny, with a, with a visit from Batman on his birthday. Hamish would often, before bed, tell, would tell Sonny Batman stories about how him and Sonny and Batman will fight crime together. 
Sonny would always be a little bit disappointed with his dad's stories because he knew Batman wasn't real. So, on his birthday, Hamish gave Sonny a Batman utility belt. The belt was going to have one object missing from it. At that moment, Andy would arrive at the door in the Batman costume with the missing object from the utility belt in his hand. So, the doorbell rang and Sonny raced to the door. And his mind was blown. He met Batman. He was stunned. But after Batman left, Sonny's reaction became underwhelming. And it was interesting to hear how Hamish spoke about the event on the podcast. He said this, When you give your child their fantasy, it blows their mind. Then something weird happens in a kid's head afterwards. I think they enjoy, enjoy imagining it more than reality. Isn't that something that we can all relate to? You know, you look forward to that holiday, you look forward to that concert that you bought tickets to, you look forward to that movie coming out into the cinemas, you look forward to achieving a life goal, and it might be pleasing at the time, but it never really lives up to the hype that you're hoping for. See, Peter reminds his readers of these words so they won't forget that those who are persecuting them, well, they're going to be like perishing flowers. See, it's easy to look at people's glory and be awed by it. It's easy to seek after our own glory, but in the end, it fades away. And if we constantly live in a pattern to gain such glory while abandoning God's call for us to love, that we are in danger of fading away, of withering. See, the more we seek glory, the harder it is to love. But even though there is a warning for us here, Peter's quotation from Isaiah is to be a comfort for these persecuted Christians in 1 Peter. As the history of the Old Testament unfolds, we know that God's words come true 70 years later, after they were forced into exile, Israel returned back into the land that God had promised them. But this chapter in Isaiah 40 doesn't just show us a short-term prophecy, but a long-term one that relates to us. It says this, A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged plains, places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, if we were to read start of Mark's gospel, it would begin with some of these words from Isaiah referring to the ministry of John the Baptist ushering the way for Jesus. It's through the arrival of this long-awaited saviour that Isaiah's words come true. It's by verse 15 that Jesus proclaims his kingdom is near for those who repent and believe the good news. And at this moment in time, We still don't feel the full force of God's kingdom rule being established. It may be near, but it's definitely not complete. We're still waiting. We're waiting for his return again. So how does verses 24 and 25 help us to continue in our love? 
when it would be easier for us to be like those people around us? Well, the key is that last sentence in verse 25. And Peter says this, and this is the word that was preached to you. And when I first read this, I wanted to accuse the apostle of reading his Bible badly. Peter, no, it's not written to us. Isaiah spoke those words to the people under King Hezekiah's rule. But what Peter is saying is this, that just as the word of God can't be stopped, just as it is endured previously, continue to have faith that this word will endure to fulfill its purpose. What is that purpose? Full restoration, where our perishing bodies will be like his imperishable body, our complete transformation. So how does this help us to endure in love? Well, we can endure in being loving because we can trust that God's word will endure to bring about justice. Justice for those who have persecuted us, who have treated us badly, but justice for us in the sense that God in his son has taken our place so that we can be justified. See, that's the word of comfort that a marginalised, persecuted people need to hear. Continue to be loving. Continue to be like Jesus because the scorn and the hate and the pain will receive the full force of God's justice. Those who seek their own glory will fade away, but those who long for God's glory, well, they will have that humanity completely restored. Which leads us to our third statement, our third point on your bulletin. How can we start to love? In verse 1, we have a therefore. So in light of everything that Peter has just said, we are not to be malicious. We are not to be deceptive. We are not to be hypocritical. We are not to be envious. We are not to be slanderous. And I think we can kind of already understand why Peter doesn't want his readers to do these things. It's the type of behaviour that is fueled by hate. The very thing that goes against love. The type of thing that repays evil. So we must resist. Instead, the behaviour that we are to stop should be replaced with a foundation. At this point, I would think that Peter would say, you know, if you want to stop being malicious, then well, what's the opposite of being malicious? It'd be, be kind. Be kind to people. If you want to stop being deceptive, then just be, be truthful. But he actually tells us something different. He tells us to be like newborn babies, babies who crave their mother's milk. See, Peter doesn't tell us what this milk is, but we can see in verse 3 that by drinking this spiritual milk, we will grow in our salvation. So I don't think it's a long bow to suggest that this spiritual milk relates to the theme. <coughs> relates to the theme that Peter has already been exploring. You can see this in verse 23. You can see it in verse 25. It's the enduring word of God. See, for it's the word of God which reveals the person and work of God. And it's when we explore his act of salvation, 
written in the scriptures, that we gain more knowledge, which helps us to grow in our understanding, which motivates us to love. See, it's hard to grow in our salvation if you don't feed it. And it's this sentence in verse 3, which is the one that I want us to spend the rest of our time on thinking about. Because if you've known anything about newborn babies, they crave milk. I did some research. Actually, I just spoke to Emily. And she, uh, she said to me that an average baby needs to f- be fed every three to four hours. And my mouth dropped to the floor because I did the maths in my head. And I said, all right, three to four hours. And if all right, we, we take four hours, one feed for every four hours. That means that's six feeds, six feeds in one day. You know, and at, at this point, I could say to you all, you know, you should be all reading your Bibles six times a day, one every four hours. But I want to assure you that our passage is definitely not giving us a one-size-fits-all ruling. But dare I say, the analogy is still a very good one. Sorry, give me a moment, guys. What do I do in this situation, Stu? <laughs> the analogy is a very good one um, because, um, yeah, I've lost a page in my script if you haven't already noticed. And I didn't think this would ever happen to me. Could uh, we do a song and then I'll find that page and then we'll come back to it? All right, I'll finish the sermon. Thank you. 
flexible here. I'm going to do something that I was going to do later on, but we'll do it now. Um, I was going to talk about the reality of raising support for Julie. We heard from Julie and she's an inspiration to many of us here and if you haven't met Julie, please take the time to meet her this afternoon. Um, Julie's at 77% of her funding target, so she's three quarters of the way, not quite there yet. And with the falling you know, value of the dollar sometimes, uh, it, it's, um, it's optimal for her to head back home with 100% of her funding. So uh, there's, a, there's an opportunity for us to continue to support her. We support her as a church and many individuals support her. But we need to just get her over the line. So I'm going to ask you to consider supporting her as I have uh, our morning congregation as well. Uh, Wayne, in a couple of weeks, is going to be talking about the opportunities that he has next year up in Newcastle with AFES. We as a church are putting together our budget at the moment. We're behind. We're always behind. We've got great opportunities next year, but we need more money. And so it can seem like there's Julie to support, there's Wayne, there's church. It's a bombardment of financial opportunity. Opportunity. Or burden, is it? Because giving is that reality that the Christian has, uh, that generous contribution that Christians give to life of the church for the mission of the church. But for the Apostle Paul, it's not seen as something that's mundane. It's not seen as something that's not spiritual and just merely practical. It's not even something to shy away from because it's just a bit awkward and makes us feel weird. The Apostle Paul saw giving and saw the generous Christian as saw Christian generosity at the core of what it is just to be a Christian. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, an extended section on giving for two chapters, but he starts it this way. He says, Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Paul is celebrating. He's celebrating what God has done in these northern Greek churches for the sake of the Jerusalem church, And he knows that God has been at work in these Christian people. Paul doesn't start with the need of the Jerusalem church. 
He doesn't start with how worthy the cause is. No, Paul starts with God's generosity and how he has been generous and how this generosity has been given to all Christian people. Our God is a generous God and he wonderfully is at work to make us generous too. He's done that from the very start of the life of our church and he'll continue to do it. The need is always great. There are already so many good things to give to. The need is great, but God's grace is inexhaustible. And so we have an opportunity to support Julie. We have an opportunity to support Wayne. We have an opportunity and a privilege to continue giving and grow our giving for the cause of the gospel in our church. I'm going to pray that God might continue to grow a generosity in us as he's done in the past. May he continue to do in the future. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may you grow within us generous hearts. May we know and experience your kindness, your overflowing mercy. And Father, may we reflect that in our lives with our finances, particularly with these three opportunities before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Benny, part B. Let's go. How many sermons have you heard and the preacher's foot on the page and he scribbled? Probably not many. So we're going to concentrate on that last verse, verse 3. And I was saying it was a good analogy to think, to think about for our final moments of our sermon here this afternoon. See, a baby doesn't just come to his mother to have his cravings satisfied, as the verse indicates. But even though I'm sure all babies clearly enjoy being fed, but they consume because by it they will grow physically. By constantly coming to their mother, we see over time this, that babies no longer stay as they are. They grow, don't they? The more they eat, the more they feed, the more they come to their mother's milk, they grow. So just as we come to our Father in his word, we should see our own spiritual growth over time. At this stage, there may be some sceptics in the room. Because what I'm essentially saying is that the more we read our Bibles... Ultimately, it will make us more loving. It will give us the ability to make us more loving. And so you might be thinking, well, why is that the starting point? Why is reading the Bible the starting point to love? Can't it just be something that we all kind of know about? Isn't it just so evident? Why do we need to start by reading the Bible? Well, undoubtedly, we can also be readers of the Word of God and not change and the Apostle James speaks about this in his letter. Before the moment, we're going to be concentrating on the foundation of Scripture being the tool that can help us in our holiness. See, in our lives, there are certain people that we go to when we need help. If you are sick, who do you go to? You go to a doctor. You go to them because they have studied the human body. And whatever is wrong with it, you know they may have the knowledge to go about fixing you. If you have a car that has a problem, who do you go to? Well, you go to a mechanic. They know cars. They'll be able to isolate the problem and they'll be able to fix your car. And you know what? I could continue this analogy with a number of different people who are in different professional fields. But the question is, who do you turn to for your spiritual growth? Well, we turn to God as we hear his voice in his word. Because through our study of the scriptures, we learn from him. 
he gives us the knowledge to love like he does. Because it's God through his word that equips us for life. See, the more you acquire, the more information you accumulate, the more you're able to draw upon your knowledge, the better you'll be able to stand firm and love like Jesus. See, it's when your back is against the wall and there's a real temptation to stop loving. At that moment, you need to draw upon your biblical reserves to continue to love. It's when you are tired and you're feeling worn out that you need a reason to stop indulging ourselves and start loving those around us. And it's God in his word that is the foundation that we need. So to answer our very last point, how can we start to love? We can start to love by coming to God in his word. It's his instruction that equips us to continue in love, even when it's hard. Undoubtedly, the Christian life is a difficult one, where it can be hard to love people deeply. But we do this together. See, back in verse 22, Peter asks us to love one another. See, our love should be directed to one another in the context of church, and it's from that love which should be extended to our outside communities. And so knowing that the Christian life is hard, we should rally around each other and encourage each other and support each other. And it may be that love, that particular love that you share with someone that helps them get back on track. That might be an application point that you might want to take home for yourself. But I also think we must stop and pause and ask ourselves, how are we progressing with our Bible reading as a church? Last uh, Sunday in our morning congregation, Julianne, um, one of our morning parishioners, um, spoke last week and gave an interview. And as someone who is extremely busy, she knows she needs to schedule in her Bible reading. And so she does it first thing every morning even if it's only five minutes. If you're a television watcher, I'm sure that you may have noticed that whenever there is a financial ad, they often will have this quick voiceover right at the end of the ad. They'll say something like this, past performance isn't an indicator of future performance. And they say it really, really quickly, kind of just to cover themselves because, you know, they know the future is unknown. They know that their financial advice is risky. So they cover themselves. See, if you feel like your reading of the word of God is slipping, if you're someone who hasn't picked up their Bible in some time, then I want to say to you that that past performances are probably going to be a good indicator of future performance. You have to ask, something might need to change. Can I encourage you to look at your diary or your calendar or whatever you use to organise your life and plan for it and schedule your Bible reading in? Because if you see God's call for you to be loving as important, the only way you're going to be back on track is for it to be scheduled in your life. It can be really easy to focus on the negatives and be overwhelmed with this particular prospect But as God's people, we must learn from him. 
But verse 3 finishes on a very positive note. We might say to ourselves, why do we continue on in this faith that asks so much of us? Why do we bother? At the start of the service, I wanted us to recall that moment when we heard the enduring word of God for the first time, when you place your trust in it. Why did you do that? Why did you all bother? Well, I assume, I assume that you did that because you tasted a little bit of the gospel and you recognised it to be good. So let that life-altering encounter continue to fuel your Bible reading and let your Bible reading fuel your love. This is why we bother. We bother because we serve a God who has been so, so, so very good to us. Florin would often have communist officials and informants come to his restaurant. When they would enter, he would tell the kitchen to whip up something special. He added items to the menu and treated his political opponents as diplomatically as possible with a combination of courage, flattery and over-the-top kindness. Florence's example seems so unnatural to us, but it's by discovering the goodness of God in his word that we too are capable of such efforts. Thanks, you.